Yeah, I'm really hopeful today, like, um, that as I bring God's Word to you, as I speak, that it really links actually to what we were just talking about, about, about how we can pray, how we have authority and power and all those things. And today we're going to talk about um, what kind of house we're building for God. And so I'm excited. I think hopefully it will lead to some fruit. This is my daughter, Matilda. She um, comes to say hello. She loves spending time with Daddy, which I love. So good morning and welcome again to Freedom Church. My name's Brian, um, for those of you who don't know me, and I'm part of the Freedom Church family, um, very happily and very joyful to be part of this family. And today I'm going to be continuing our series in what kind of house, looking at this amazing question that God asks in Isaiah 66, what kind of house would you build for me? We've already begun to unpack this question a little bit and draw some parallels and links between, um, between the temple in the Old Testament and Jesus and this church. Now, I know I'm a bit echoey. If it's a bit echoey, I can switch to the handheld if that's better. Yeah, let's do it. Let's check it. Am I on? Here we go. That's probably a bit better, I think. Yeah? Lovely. I'll leave this bit on. So yeah, it's very exciting. We're going to be looking at, we've been looking at them parallels links, as I say, between, um, between the Old Testament and the temple and Jesus and his church. And last week, Sarah did a great job of unpacking to us being a house of praise and, and looking at that amazing story and powerful life-changing story as Jesus meets with the Samaritan woman at the well. And he teaches us so powerfully about what true worship looks like and the type of worshippers that God is looking for and the house of praise that he is building. So today I'm going to be looking at where God dwells. And I have three points that I want to unpack and share with you today to kind of look at this, this um, topic. And the, then three things are purpose, plan and promise. So let's jump into the first, which is purpose. See, when we talk about our purpose, we're looking at what gives us meaning why we exist in the very nature of that existence. And when exploring this, this kind of topic of where God dwells, I think that's really important to understand. So to understand this, there's only one place you can really go, you have to go right back to the beginning. So we're gonna to go to Genesis, and we're gonna look at the Genesis story, the creation story, because I believe it really does help us unpack and understand our very nature of why we were created by God in the first place. And I want to start by saying God is creator. It's part of his very nature. It's a part of his being. He can't be anything but that because that's just who he is. So God creates. That's just where to draw that line in. God creates. And we're joining in the story. God in Genesis is creating the whole cosmos. He's creating the whole universe as we know it. And then we get to this bit where he creates us. And, and I know, I think Josh might have alluded to this, it's just mind-blowing that in the, we look at the stars in space, we look at the universe, and it blows our mind just how huge it is, how, do you know, how much beyond us it is. Yet in amongst that story, God focuses in on the creation of humankind, of us, of man and woman, and it's different and it's special. So we're going to go into the first part of the Genesis story. There's two accounts in Genesis, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The, the idea is they're trying to unpack different kind of focuses of what God and what it wants to teach us about his, him as creator and us as the created. So we're going to go to Genesis 2, 7 to 8. 
And it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now I think it could, it could be easy to miss the important bit of that. If you're just reading it, and I don't know about you, I just sometimes read stuff, and if I don't read it again and again, I miss, I can miss stuff. But there's something really key in there, because what it's talking about is God breathed life and spirit into man. Some of us, Josh, Josh alluded to earlier, talk about being so breathed life in our being, he breathed, he brought alive the, the, the earth, and he breathed his spirit into us, and we had so we were created in separately and more specifically defined from all the creations. We don't hear that account for any other part of creation but us as humans. And in Genesis, we know that we're made in the image of God. In Genesis 1, 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But why did he create us? Well, firstly, God is creator. As I've said, he creates. It's, in his, it's who he is. But I think there's more to the creation of us as humankind than just the fact that God creates. See, God set us aside for relationship. His desire and purpose for us was to be in relationship with us. We are uniquely created. And in the creation account, we read how we live in perfect harmony with creation and with God. We see a perfect image of this relationship. It also gives us a clear understanding of God's intention when it comes to where he intends to dwell. So if you want to know what, where God dwells, go to creation. It tells you where he wanted to dwell. And it says in Genesis 3, 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now when we read this, there's nothing in there that makes this sound out of place. Now I don't mean Adam and Eve hiding. We know where that led. What I mean is the fact God was walking in the garden in the cool of the, cool of the day. There's nothing weird. It doesn't say, and for this one time, God decided to walk in the garden among them. No, it, it, the way it's meant to be explained and understood is that that is what God did. That's where God dwelled. He dwelled with his creation. He dwelled with Adam and Eve, and he walked with them in the cool of the day. He engaged with them all in a way that we've never, obviously, we may have had them experience, but I've never experienced God walking with me in that way. This was like a physical, tangible understanding of God being with them, present among them. And in God's purpose for us, his heart and desire has always been to dwell with his creation. And we see this clearly in Revelation, but we'll come to that a bit further on. It was always God's plan and desire to dwell with his creation, to be in close relationship with us. We were created and set apart for that very purpose. But as we know, this um, perfect peace and relationship didn't last, as you alluded to in that previous bit of a verse. Adam and Eve hid from God as he was walking in there because they sinned. They disobeyed God and sin entered the world. And because of this, God could no longer dwell among his people. We know from scripture, God is holy. And John Piper explains God's holiness as 
his infinite value as the absolutely unique, morally perfect, permanent person that he is. So it's, again, it's just God is holy, it's just who he is. But I like that bit, morally perfect. His infinite value is absolutely unique. Now God's holiness, an easy way, maybe simple way to explain this, is God is perfect. And because he's perfect, our sinfulness is a barrier to us accessing his presence. And see, while sin exists and there's no remedy or way to answer for it, our ability to enter the presence of God is removed. This means God couldn't dwell with his people as he desired. Trust me, it was for their benefit. <laughs> if you read the Old Testament of the temple, you understand why God couldn't dwell in the, in the presence of his, of his children when they were sinful in nature and had no way of paying for that. But God had a plan. God always has a plan. God said God is, always knows what he's doing. He's, always, he's, he's, he's got a destination. We don't always see it. It takes us a long time. I don't know about you in my life. I could tell you many a story where I didn't really know what God's plan was, but he always knows. And God knew, which is my second point, he had a plan. He knew we had no way to remove this sin problem. Ultimately, God giving us the law to Israel was a clear way of revealing this. The law shows us that we're completely unable to deal with our sin. And no matter how hard we try, we'll continue to sin and live a disobedient to the law and to God's perfect standard. The law points out perfectly. I mean, I don't know about you, if you've ever read the, um, the Old Testament, I could name daily some of those laws that I've, that I've not lived out. See, God, through the law, creates a way for us to have what I call like a limited access and to receive forgiveness for sin. And we find this through the sacrifice and in the temple. We've already talked over the last few weeks about how God's presence dwelled in the temple in the Holy of Holies. And God gave people, his people, strict instructions on how to construct these things, the ark and the temple. It was very, very specific. Which is what I always find the irony of that Isaiah 66 is, and, and Josh Kippers alluded to it, is it's like if God says, well, what type of house are you going to build for me? The easy answer is the one you told us to. The one you very clearly said had to be so many cubits and had to be this high and this wide and you had to use these cedar wood and you had to adorn it with this gold kind of embellishments. That's what we're going to build, is the one you told us to build. Because ultimately, as Josh has said right from the start, is it's kind of the question's kind of a bit loaded because there's nothing we can build or bring to God that has fruitful meaning. It's God who builds. It's God who, who is the one who creates and builds. We serve God, we love God, but ultimately He is the one who builds it. And it was important that it was built that way because, as I said, like it wouldn't have been good for human kind to be in God's presence because man couldn't stand in the presence of God because of our sinful state. Even the high priest who went into that holy of holies, that inner part of the temple once a year to give offering for sin, he had, that, that high priest had to be without blemish on skin, had to go through ritual cleaning, ceremonial cleaning before he could even to go in. But even still, they tied a rope around him and he had bells on the tassels of his, of his, of his robes. Because even that person, who in all intents and purposes was set aside for that role, would die regularly. It happened. I'm sure, I don't, I don't know if Josh is a, could tell me, I don't know how many accounts of that. There is accounts in the scriptures of people dying from being in the presence of God because of their sinfulness. But even these high priests, 
so that if the bell stopped ringing, you dragged them out. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be the second high priest, the one that has to go in after that, knowing what's just gone before me. I'd be a bit like panicked, so like, oh, please. But yeah, it was, it was a major thing, this was important. God's presence is not something we should take lightly. And I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes I maybe do now a bit. I think because in light of the way we live and in the light of, of Jesus and the presence that we now have of God in spirit, I think we take lightly who, what it means to have the presence of God among us. Like, this was some of the Jews' God, like the Jewish people of Israel understood the power of having the presence of God. I mean, there's a great story in, in, in 2 Samuel 6, I think it is, where the ark, which is where the presence of God was in, David finds it. And he's so filled with excitement and joy because he knows what it means for the ark to be going back to the city of David. He knows what that meant. He had seen as the ark had gone into battle and they, they won. He saw the prospering and the blessing of God that came with God's presence. He got it. And, and when David sins, um, and he sins when he sins, and morally sins sexually often, was David one of the He The first thing he begs God not to do is, please don't take your presence from me. Because they understood it. I think sometimes maybe we forget the importance of God's presence. No, I do. I don't know about you. And Sarah talked last week about how Jewish people would go to the temple and sacrifice and hear the scriptures. They went to the temple to be close to God because they knew that's where the presence of God dwelled. It's a bit like even now in, in, in things like um, other religions, but they go to the temple, they go to these temples, they're like a beacon in, in their nation. It's where you go, like you want to, people will pilgrimage to these places because there's so much significant. People went to the temple to worship because that's where God's presence was. But this wasn't a permanent solution to the issue we faced. And the reason I called it limited access earlier is because the law and sacrifice doesn't solve that sin equation for us. Not absolutely. It does to a it did for a temporary, but it's not a permanent solution. As I said before, the law just reminds us that we're unable to live to the standard God requires, and we will still sin and fall short. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is a reality we can't escape. The sacrifice in the temple was a temporary fix. Hence why they had to go back day after day, week after week, year after year for the, for the sacrifice of sin. The, the sacrifice was never done with finality. This, you know, they had to continue to go back and that cycle would continue of we sin, we come back to God, we repent, we offer sacrifice, we feel good about ourselves, but then we go off and we sin again and we have to go back. After, and it would be in a cycle and it would just go round and round. And this would have been continued forever. But God had a greater plan at hand. Because ultimately, with that way of, of functioning, we could never ultimately enjoy God's presence as we did in the garden. God's presence would always be limited to the inner part of the Holy of Holies. It would always be limited to being separate from us because that sin issue was not fully dealt with. Now that all seems pretty bleak, I understand. But God had a greater plan in hand for us and for us as Christians, we read the Old Testament and see Jesus weaved through and the promise of, of God's plan for mankind. We see that because we look at it through, through eyes that understand and know Jesus if you're a Christian. 
But we needed all that came before to lay the foundation for Christ. So people, often people say, well, why didn't God just bring Jesus straight away? Why did he not wear like that? Because God's plans and purposes are greater than ours, and we don't always see the big picture. It needed to happen in that way in order for, to, to lay the foundation for Jesus to come and to do what he did. So the truth of the Gospels, we understand it from Romans 6.23, is that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, we needed that wage to be paid in full, but, that was, but ultimately, if you offer an imperfect sacrifice, you will never pay that price fully. You can never pay that price fully, because the sacrifice isn't, it's not perfect, it's not, it's not equivalent. See, in Jesus, we find that perfect sacrifice, and this deals with the issue of sacrifice that the Jews faced. As in Jesus dying, he pays that wage in full, once and for all. There's no need for additional costs to be paid, and it removes the need for the sacrifice of the temple, the animal sacrifice. And he offers forgiveness freely to all who accept him and declare him Lord. So he deals with that. So in Jesus, he draws a line. There's no, he, there's no longer a need for that sacrifice as we see in the Old Testament. And Jesus always also deals with the law aspect for us as well. See, where we fell short and always fall short, he didn't. He lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law completely. And this is something we couldn't do. As I said, I, I think, being honest, I think most of us would admit we've all sinned. Yeah? Probably sinned this week. Yeah? Probably going to sin next week. Yeah? It's a reality we live with. But Jesus didn't. He did something we couldn't do. Now, Jesus is clear in Matthew 5, 17, that he didn't come to change or abolish the law, but to fulfil it. See, God's perfect standard still exists now. God hasn't changed. He suddenly doesn't go, oh, that doesn't matter anymore. You can you do what you want. His standard, his perfect standard exists, and that doesn't change. But in Jesus, we can receive what we call his righteousness, his right standing before God. And he, and he says that he clothes us in his righteousness. He basically covers it with it. And this means we can stand before God, the Father, having, having not been able to live a perfect life, not being able to fulfill that standard, and knowing we still get it wrong, but we're covered in Jesus and in his perfection, in his righteousness, which means when God looks at you, as if you're a believer in Jesus, he sees Jesus, he sees that clothing, that righteousness that's bestowed upon you because of what Jesus did. I love how Paul writes it in Romans 8. He says this, he says, For the law of the spirit of life has yet has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of, of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned the sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, God's plan, right from the fall, has always been Jesus. To make the way for us to come back into relationship with him, and ultimately for him to dwell among us again. Which brings me to that, my final point, which is a promise. See, after Jesus dies and is resurrected, 
we move into a new season and experience of the presence of God. See, no longer do we require sacrifice for sin. No longer is God's presence confined to the temple. When Sarah spoke last week, she shared verses that also hold, I think, a lot of significance for today. Um, when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Now this holds significance for more than that reason alone, but for a few reasons. But one of the reasons it's important is because the presence of God would no longer be in the temple as it was before. And a key reason the Jews went to the temple, as I've said, is because they wanted to be close to where God's presence dwelt. They wanted to be close to where God was. See, Jesus was foreshadowing, was showing this, was painting this picture of the Samaritan woman about what was to come. And then John the Baptist kind of reveals some of the nature of this in Luke 3.16. It says, John answered them all, saying, I baptise you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I love that. It's good stuff. That should fill us with a bit of excitement. <laughs> See, now God's presence is found home in his church. It's found home in the followers of Jesus. So this means wherever if you are a Christian today, wherever you go, God's presence goes. Wherever you gather with other Christians, God's presence is there. It's not confined to a building. The temple is now the people of God. We are the dwelling place of God's presence. If you know and love Jesus, if you've declared him Lord, his presence dwells within you and you carry it. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. It was in the end. The verse of the day today actually was it's from 1 Corinthians on Bible app. It's 1 Corinthians 3.16, which is, I love it because it's, God is, I love how God brings this together. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? We are now the dwelling place of God's spirit, God's presence. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This should blow our minds guys. This should be the most exciting thing. This should be the thing that you go, wow. I've said it earlier, we don't seem to get it. Like, do we not get how, how significant this is? Like if you had said to a, to a Jew, like kind of to a person of Israel, like pre kind of Jesus like, Oh, well, I'm the dwelling place of God's presence. They would have absolutely loved fashion from the heresy and you probably stone set. But if they didn't do that, they'd be blown away. Because if that, for them, like, they, they had to go to the temple, they had to do all these processes and things to have the Spirit of God within you would just blow their mind. It's like, so you've got God. The God of all creation dwells in you. His power is imparted to you. The authority is bestowed upon you. How are you not like out there doing the most amazing things, seeing God do the most amazing things? They'd be blown away. They'd be absolutely blown away. Now God does 
filled with these people in the Old Testament at times with his spirit. It's not like that doesn't happen, but it, it's often for very specific situations and occasions um, where, where God is doing something significant in the people of Israel. For God to fill us with his presence should be something that absolutely sets us alight. I have the presence of God in me. I, have, I am the temple for the Holy Spirit. God, that means I have unlimited access to God, day in, day out. Every day and moment, waking moment of my life, God is with me. I don't have to go anywhere to meet with him. I don't have to, I don't have to do a certain thing. He's just, he's here, he's among me, among us now. God is here, it says in scripture, when two or three are gathered in my name, my presence is among them. God's presence is here today. Not because we're in a church building, that's irrelevant, because the church is in the building. And we are a church. Now that's exciting, but it gets more exciting. It gets more exciting. See, we still don't, like I said at the start, we still don't experience the presence of God in the same way that the that Adam and Eve did in the garden, do we? God doesn't walk among us in the same way. But he promises he will. And we call this kind of the now and the not yet. Has anyone heard that term before? So it means that the stuff that we experience now with the presence of God, because we have God's Spirit dwelling within us, we see, we can see miracles, we can receive healing, we can see the power of God come in and transform you know, a situation, a room. But we don't necessarily see the fullness of that yet. And we won't, not until Jesus returns. When Jesus returns in power and glory, we will see the fullness of God, the fullness of his dwelling in and amongst his people. And we, we often call that the now and the not yet. In, Re- in Revelation 21, I love this. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned with her for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's just a, the most beautiful image of what is to come, the not yet of God's kingdom. So yes, we don't have God dwelling with us in the garden as he did with Adam and Eve, but it will come. There will be a day where you will be in the kingdom of God with Jesus. If you're a believer, you'll be there. God will be walking among his people. You will be a part. It will be, I can't imagine, I don't know what that's going to look like. I, can't, I don't think I've got a brain. Or I don't think many of us have the brain to fully comprehend it. But God will walk again among his people. It's exciting. I want a bit of charismatic kind of like. Amen. Hallelujah. All in tears, all that pain will be washed away. God's very presence and being will be among his people. That's a celebration. That's excitement. That should fill us with joy. We should be we should be shouting hallelujah. Amen. Like that's why we're charismatic. We believe in this stuff. We believe this stuff is happening, going to happen. We should be excited. God is going to, his dwelling place will be among us again. We will see in fullness God's, God's presence as Adam and Eve did in the garden. 
It's amazing. I'm excited anyway. I know you are. As, as English Christians, we're excited in our hearts. Our hearts are, are just joy-filled and screaming out. I want us to connect that with that though sometimes. Because people need to hear what's going on in here. If you want to bring someone in, so this is an off topic and I can do this all day. If you want to see people out there coming in here, that needs to connect with that. Because they, need to, they can't see your heart in the same way. Oh, I can, you know, sorry, I can see how your heart's filled with love for people. They need to hear it. They need, they need to, oh, that can connect with these. And you can do an action as well. It needs to do something out here, otherwise it's just like a banging gong. It doesn't do anything. So where does God's presence dwell? It dwells in us. And we are building a house where one day God's presence will dwell among us again, as he did in the garden. That is where we're going. But we're not really building it fully. It's God who's building it. We're helping out. So I want to respond. Um, I've just felt this really linked recently to, we're talking about this actually, I think, I think, I don't know, we're talking about a few people here, just about saying, you know, we wanted to see release for people, we wanted to see freedom, we fasted, and we, we were praying, and, and even the stuff we were talking about South Africa then, and I just, I really felt this morning that I, I think we need a bit of revitalising, I think we need to be filled again, like, you can ask God to fill you with the Spirit again, you know. It's not like a, when you convert, you get one. You want to get one filling, that's it. You've had your you 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 Holy Spirit experience when you became a Christian, and that's it now. That's it. No more till Jesus cut the turns. It's not like that. We are to be continue to be filled. We are to continue to overflow. And we can only do that if we're asking God, if we're asking Him to fill us with His Spirit. So I want to do that this morning. I want us to pray for us to be filled with the Spirit of God, to be filled again. Now that could look like a lot of things. I've seen people dance, sing, jump up and down. I've seen them fall. I've seen them cry. I've seen them um, wail. I've seen them. Um, I've seen them shake. I've seen them do all, the, the full range of stuff that can happen. But it's all good stuff because it's all God's stuff. So I want to do that. I want to pray. If you put your hands up if you're feeling a little bit dry recently. I know I am. We can always do with more of the Holy Spirit. Always do with more of Jesus. That's what we're going to do. So if you want to stand with me.